in a world of pop radio and plastic pop hits. Cause baby, I One station fears no format. WCBN FM Ann Arbor, where our form is always free. Tune in for the best jazz. Rock and weird stuff you won't hear anywhere else. Rock over London, rock on Chicago. Wheaties, represent champions. Broadcasting live 24 7. WCBN FM Ann Arbor at WCBN.org or 88.3 on the dial. Turn it to the left and rip the knob off. afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. I'm so happy to have in the studio Tom Bissell swinging by with his latest book, Apostle, Travels Among the Tombs of the Twelve. Tom, thanks for being here. It's a delight to be here as always. <laughs> well, I haven't seen you since September 2013. Missed you. I've missed you, you too. Looking good. Thank you. The years have been kind to you. <laughs> well, and, and I'm a little grayer now. <laughs> Me too. Oh, aren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> oh no, aren't the Liz we? isn't. <laughs> She's fine. She's sparkly and new. Yeah. <laughs> um, I should say we're taping this program. It's March 23rd, 2016, and you're in town to to launch the book in Ann Arbor. Well, mm-hmm. not well the. The book is out in the world, but the Ann Arbor launching it, Literati. That sounds way grander than the the reality, but I I I, I, I like the grander version. Yes, I'm I'm doing the Ann Arbor launch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's still a few book towns left in the U.S., and you seem to be have been going to, you know, all of them: San Francisco, Seattle, Portland. Um, no Portland, but Minneapolis. Oh, Minneapolis. I was there yesterday. Okay. Yeah, no, it was a great. Great turnout, so let's hope we replicate it tonight. Yeah, and then you've got some more dates coming up in the future if we jump forward to April. Yeah, you... just Nashville. And... Oh, and not L.A. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I live in L.A., so I don't count that one. Okay, but that's the book festival, right? Yeah, so yeah. that should be a pretty big one. Yeah. And and so it's been you've been on the book tour for a while, mm-hmm. Um and Easter time is coming up. So what a great time to talk about the apostles and your journeys. Happy um, Easter, everyone. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to start by actually, I'll read your short bio, Tom, and then got got a question about your title even. Mm-hmm. 
Tom Bissell is the author of eight previous books, most recently The Disaster Artist, and has been awarded the Rome Prize and a Guggenheim Fellowship. He writes frequently for Harper's Magazine and The New Yorker. We now know he lives in L.A. <laughs> well, we could have known that from your author's note, too, since that's where you were located when yeah. you signed it, right? If we're... Okay, so the title, Apostle... Um, on the cover, inside title page, Apostle or Bones That Shine Like Fire Travels Among the Tombs of the Twelve. Explanation, I take it you want? I would love that because I know that this comes into the story, yeah. into the journey. But how is it? Why the, Yeah, why in the subtitle? Would you like the fake answer or the hard-nosed, real commercial answer? <laughs> the one from the heart, Tom, uh, of course. <laughs> so my working title for eight years was Bones That Shine Like Fire because I think it's a beautiful title. And I really liked it. And the legend that it comes from has to do with Bartholomew. His tomb was ruined by Saracen invaders when his, his, his tomb was supposedly in this island off the coast of Italy. And as the legend has it, uh, the Saracens came through and just wrecked everything. And there was one priest left wandering the, the wreckage of this monastery afterwards. And Bartholomew appears as an apparition to this priest and says, pick up my bones. And the priest says, screw you. I'm not picking up anything. You didn't protect us when you should have. You didn't help us when we were attacked. And Bartholomew says, well, for your information, I tried very hard to protect you, but there's so much sin here that uh, God did not heed my, my request for protection. So uh, you have to get my bones out of here, stupid priest, because they're in danger. I'm paraphrasing. Um, so the priest is very chastened by this and says... Thou, thou stupid priest. Thou stupid priest. The priest is very chastened by this. And so he says, well, uh, you know, look around and look at all the bones all over the place. How the heck will I know which ones are yours? And Bartholomew says, search at night and the bones that shine like fire will be mine. So I just thought, there's my title. Like the minute I saw the phrase... So several years go by, I'm writing with this title. This is obviously going to be the title of the book. And then my editor sort of came in at some point and was like, I agree that it's a great title. It's a beautiful title. But we need a book that advertises exactly what it's about in the title. Bones That Shine Like Fire sounds like a literary novel. And if anyone is passing by the table, they're going to look at that title and they're just not going to know what it's about. And we need a title that instantly tells you what it's about. So when people come into a bookstore, they're like, yeah, I heard that new book about apostles is out. Yeah. Bones That Shine Like Fire, I think it's called. Bones something. Here's a title. I heard that book about the apostles is out. I think it's called Apostle. <laughs> it kind of cuts out the middleman, right? So I agreed with the, the commercial reality of why we needed to change it. But my one concession was, can I at least put the alternate title on the title page? It doesn't have to be in the cover. Mm. Can it be in the title page? Because, you know, Moby Dick is titled... Moby Dick or the White Whale. Um, on the title page. On the title oh. page, yeah. So that a lot of books back then had alternate with, titles. And always with the or. Or, yeah. As the conjunction. Because I was going to say, oh, well, why do you have... But that's why. Because yeah. that's the convention. Because yeah. it is done. Yep. So that is the alternate title of the book. I'm very happy because I still got it on there. And now it's a delightful conversation piece for us to discuss. So, yeah. Thanks for telling this story, You're too. welcome. Um, <laughs> and I think my editor was fundamentally right. It's important to note that he was. I mean, just in, in terms of getting the book out, you know, in the best way possible. And because it's creative nonfiction, that's why yeah. that you needed this. 
It is interesting, though, isn't it? Because you also think, but this is this is art. Like this is this is a project that's its own thing. This is my ninth book. Whatever, whatever, <laughs> whatever gets it out there is, you know, I've, I, I'm. I'm way more willing to listen to hard-nosed commercial advice now than I was eight books ago, I'll tell you that. So uh, maybe that means I've sold out. I don't know. I think it means I'm much less precious about my own intentions, you know. How do I make this easier on everybody is the way that I, that I think about it now. And, or, and to reach the, the audience yeah. that you want to reach. Yeah. And Well, and in your acknowledgments, I think you also, you have a daughter now, and you're like, this I is, do. it's you know, books aren't the most important thing or so. That's so true. maybe that's... We have heard a thing for changing. I, I think so. Yeah. Well, that's well, that's lovely. That's I, so. When you were telling the story um, of Saint Bartholomew mm-hmm. um, in the moment, Tom, and I think listeners could hear it through your voice as well. It's it become it is a story. It's not like this his his. You weren't telling us a bit of history. No. It felt like you were telling us a story. Yeah. In that, and that seems like one of the the central discoveries of. Your your book. The only way to understand religious scriptures are stories. Um, the New Testament is not a historical document. It's a collection of arguments and stories, mostly stories, by writers who had different agendas, but were trying to figure out very difficult theological questions and trying to address this spectacular notion of God coming to earth in the form of man and dying an executed criminal. Imagine being the first person asked to write that up. So they did it as best they can, and they did it as uh, with all the imaginative energy they could. So I just read the Gospels as really um, astounding examples of the human imagination grappling with a question that is, you know, so profoundly difficult to wrap your head around. And so writing this book over all the years that I did, I didn't know what the heck I was writing about for the first seven years I was working on it. And I eventually figured out this is a book about storytelling. And coming to a place of realization that the meaning I draw from fiction and literature is not that terribly different from the consolation and meaning that religious people draw from their religion. It's all how stories pass into your head and the meaning you draw from them. Some people insist that their stories be true. Some people are content with realizing they're not. And I think that's really all that divides us. Or that there's there's sort of the what the words are literally saying and then there's the truth of what it feels like the meaning is or the essence exactly yeah and so for seven years you were was that part of the project because this is this is a long project because the the book itself took a decade yeah just about so was that part of because part of the book project do you want to sort of walk us through like the scope the structure of the book Mm -hmm. is that it's chapters saints um, yeah, we haven't was, really talked about. I, know, the book I was is just about. thinking that I was like, you know, <laughs> I know I have some insider information here because I just just finished it. Um, so uh, so and, and you've got like statues that you have, like you sort of set up this this structure with a statue, then the the saint's name, um, the location, and then some interesting text that reads almost like like little like sub chapters that like Umberto Eco did and uh, like the name of the rose or mm-hmm. so, right? And maybe we can talk about that too. But um, yeah, do you want to kind of say how you came by the the structure and if it mimic part of the so the book production? the book is um, my traveling to the supposed reliquaries or resting sites of the twelve apostles of Jesus and. Each chapter covers a different apostle, roughly, and there are a couple chapters that are not about the Twelve. One is about Paul, and the other is about the origins of Jesus Christ. 
And it's not about Jesus so much as just how Jesus became Jesus Christ. Um, and so that's the structure of the book. Every chapter tries to be as self-contained as possible, but also I try to tell the story of the early church through the, through the 12 apostles themselves. And I realized early on, you know, almost right away, you can't really write historically about these people because there's no historical information about them. There's none. They're mentioned a few times in the Gospels and Acts of the Apostles. And that's kind of it. And then there's all this legendary outgrowth writings about them from the Apocrypha, which is the non-canonical Christian writings that erupted in the first 500 years of the faith, none of which made it into the canonical New Testament, but which is filled with crazy, strange stories like the one I just told you about Bartholomew. So the book began as a reaction to a novel that I tried to write when I was in my 20s, which was about the Apostle John. So I was in my early 20s, and I had this great idea to write a novel that was took place partially in the first century and then partially in contemporary times. And the Apostle John was a main character. Um, I worked on it for five years until I eventually realized it was just way more ambitious than something I was capable of pulling off. And so I set it aside. But I'd done all this research. I'd read dozens of books and written hundreds of pages of this book. But the most interesting historical fact I heard when I was researching this was that John's tomb is the only apostolic tomb that's quote-unquote empty. His remains are no longer in the reliquary that that is attributed to him, which is in Selchuk, Turkey, beneath uh, the ruins of a basilica that uh, was only rediscovered in the 1920s and only excavated in the 1950s. And they, real in you know, true to legend, the, the, the tomb of John was, was empty. There was nothing in it. And I thought, well, gosh, that's an interesting fact. Flash forward a couple years, or around this time, I joined the Peace Corps. I was serving in Uzbekistan, and I read about this Russian archaeologist discovered the purported reliquary of Matthew in next-door Kyrgyzstan. Yet again, I thought, ah, interesting fact. And it just got filed away somewhere in my head. Several years later, I was finishing my book about my dad's and my trip to Vietnam. I was putting it to bed, and I thought, what am I going to write next? Falling asleep one night, it passed through my head, apostolic travel book. And I woke up the next morning and I started writing up the proposal. This was in 2006. I thought I would be done with it pretty quickly. It took me nine years. Here we are. Apostolic travel book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How's that for the yeah. subtitle? <laughs> yeah, an apostolic travel book. It's not bad, actually. Um, so... It was a long process, and I read a lot of stuff. And, you know, I, I wrote three books while I was writing this book. Because, no, The Disaster Artist. Disaster Artist, Extra, Extra Lives, Lives, and uh, a, a short book I wrote. Um, for McSweeney's? For Microsoft. I wrote oh, a, a oh. book for Microsoft, which is a whole other thing. Maybe we can get to that. that <laughs> we, we don't need to get to that. So, and then I published an essay collection uh, during that, too. So kind of four books in a way. So I put this book aside for long periods of time, often as long as a year at a time, because I didn't really know what it was I was writing. And we, before we came on the air, you mentioned Gideon. Gideon Lewis Krauss, the writer who he and I went on a long trip. Well, we, he and I walked across Spain together, which terminates at a famous Christian pilgrimage location. The let me let me stop you for a second, because yeah, okay. I want to get into this. But wait, okay. let's take a short break. Okay. But that, I think... That's a longer story. It is indeed. Okay. Today on Living Writers, Tom Bissell is here. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be right back. 
that David played and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall and the major lift, the baffled king composing Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Tom Bissell is here picking the songs for us. Tom, thanks for choosing the songs. It was hard to stop that one, but I definitely wanted to make sure that we got a chance to talk it's <laughs> a beautiful song that's like 17 minutes long so uh, but we were just discussing how lovely it is yeah. you said something choral right and that was the first song that popped into my head which is kind of beautiful because yeah. we don't we don't need to have the um i don't know a pipe organ playing for it to be something that brings us to that right moment of yeah. the, um okay so we're going to get to the pilgrimage, okay. <laughs> um, but, but first, um, you, when you, when you, when you set out, when you're setting out in the beginning of the book, Tom, um, you actually start with a, a quote by Ann Carson, my religion, um, my religion makes no sense and does not help me. Therefore I pursue it. And and this book, I know you said before the break that you also had other ideas and projects and family and different things happening in your life. But this book is something that it, you kept pursuing and this meaning and this idea of faith and story. Um, so much so that by the end of it, these words are embedded within the chapter. You're the first person to have, to have caught that. Yeah. Yeah, that I sort of snuck them into the actual prose. Um yeah, nobody else has ever mentioned that. So, yeah, that's good. That's great. I'm glad you noticed that. But but it doesn't feel like sneaking in. It feels more like it's claimed. Mm -hmm. I don't, could you, what do you, is that right to say? Or? Yeah, no, it's 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 my way of uh, trying to signal that this place that I started, because um, that was, I knew that was, I, I thought, almost made that epigraph, that Ann Carson epigraph, the epigraph for the whole book. But it seemed too aggressively secular to put right up front. So I put it in front of the author's note instead. And um, at that quote, I really love her work. I don't know if she's a, I mean, who knows what she does? It's like half poetry and half prose, and all of it's just amazing. She's an essayist who writes poems as essays. They're crazy. They're, her work is just so astonishingly good. And she lives here in Ann Arbor. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow, wow. Bucky Town. So when I first read that poem, it touched something deep inside of me, I think, for a lot of people who are obsessed with this stuff but are not believers themselves. These stories and these 
conceptions of the divine get into your head and under your skin so deeply that even when you stop believing in them, it's almost they become more powerful in a weird sort of a way. Is it because of the, they're the stories that we've been told from a, a young age, yeah. usually, too? They're the foundation of our civilization in a lot of ways and how we construct meaning about friendship and loyalty and bravery and community. Um, the ground zero for all of those notions in Western culture is the stories that are in the Gospels in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, they're hugely important to me in that way. And, and yet re you read them closely and you see how odd and strange and how authentically alien they are, you know. And so I think that quote resonated for me. And so by the end of the book, when I'm writing this last chapter, trying to figure out what the heck do I say to wrap up this journey, those words just came right back to me. And so I use them in, in my prose, not as a way to like steal Anne Carson's words, but as a way to acknowledge like how powerfully that poem, those lines in that poem had imprinted on my own conception of, of the subject. You mentioned that some of these stories themselves like this, the got in the gospels, they seem alien when you start looking at them closely. And it's clear in, in apostle, um, or bones that shine like fire Thank you. travels among the tomb of the twelve. Um, that you really you're not just pursuing these places where you're going and to try to experience what's there to see now. You're in the research of the stories themselves. These the I almost I, I don't know I kept picturing you in different sections of each of the chapters where you were sort of in this like room that had stained glass but these huge massive books and um please correct me if I'm mispronouncing names but like or hen or, origin or origin okay uh, I tried to make it <laughs> I think <laughs> more sophisticated like, I don't know Ori what hen. I thought yeah, hen. <laughs> like he sometimes or uh, he becomes like a character because he weaves throughout in mm -hmm. these different moments and and at some moments heroic at other moments a heretic or so um but i think going what where i'm going with this is just this idea of these stories if you're looking at them closely they are alien they do feel like they, they or they don't make they don't make sense they contradict each other um like how could for example maybe jesus be riding into town on a donkey and there's palms and a and a, and people embracing him and so happy and maybe the next week then he's the one they're like no pick the other guy <laughs> to save you know it doesn't even seem to make Any good sense. like narrative sense or <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and so and you help us see the alienness quality of it because because we're so I well I'll speak for myself because um, a growing up Catholic, these are the stories that you're surrounded with all the time. And so if you don't ever question them or see them in that different way, you, you just don't <laughs> see them in that different way. They just almost, they seem like stories that you just accept. But you, because you're taking it out of that context and you're also adding in these other layers of research, it becomes something very different and alien. Well, I think Christians do themselves no favors when they don't, when they tell the really simple sanitized version of these stories to people that are believers when they're young. You know, obviously no one wants to dump origin on an eighth grader, but 
the fact is that we, the fact that so many Christians really believe that the minute Jesus ascended to heaven, the 12 apostles looked around at each other and thought, well, I guess, uh, here we go. Let's go found some Christian churches. And they marched off to all different <laughs> Ukraine or England or Ethiopia or, or India. And they all sort of arrived, planted their flag down and said, let us build us a church. And that from that moment, Christianity just was on the march and that everyone realized, yes, this is a brand new religion. Jesus Christ is the son of God. That's totally easy to understand. Here we go. That's not what happened. Right. And is equal in power. And then there's this other thing, the Holy Spirit, that's also equal. That but is it? Yeah, that took <laughs> hundreds of years to work all that stuff out. And Christianity's break from Judaism was prolonged and difficult and slow. And so the fact that I think when Christians who are really interested and when they dig into this stuff, I think a lot of them get disillusioned and lose their faith because the, the truth of the matter which is so much more complicated and so much more interesting than the sort of simple, dumb versions we get, I think is kind of shocking to a lot of people and shakes their faith because they think, well, I wasn't told any of this. This freely available information that is hidden away in things we call books, you know, no one ever shared any of this with me. And I think some Christians get very upset because it feels like stuff has been hidden from them. It hasn't been hidden from them. It just hasn't been taught to them very well. And, and I think, uh, you ask the average Christian who Origin was. I mean, it's not like I knew who Origin was really before I started working on this book, but Origin is someone that should, that an educated Christian should know about. Like mm-hmm. the first great theologian of the church who formulated so many ideas, some that were accepted, most that weren't, but the first great intellectual and theologian of the church, condemned as a heretic by the Catholic Church in the sixth century. That seems like something that more people should know. And his full name was Origen Adamantius. So even his name was unbelievably cool. Um, <laughs> well, and also almost like you can't make this, like it's the origin and yeah. it's like Adam. <laughs> what, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, when we were, uh, when my beloved girlfriend was pregnant, if it was a boy, I was going to demand we named him Origen. And she was like, no, <laughs> no, no. I was like, how Origen Adamantius Bissell is the greatest name imaginable. And then when we had a girl, she confessed. Like, she was like, she's like, Whew. my prayers have been answered. <laughs> so oh I guess my spawn dodged a bullet with that one. And for the added, moment. For the moment, yeah. <laughs> but um, so I'm, I'm, I really feel like, uh, well, let's talk about conspiracy theories. You know how people have these crazy what? conspiracy theories that when you like look at the truth, the truth is inevitably like way more interesting and actually more compelling than a conspiracy. And the truth actually compels you to make connections and to give people the benefit of the doubt and to actually think through the logical steps of how one thing leads to the other, whereas a conspiracy just implies mm. hidden cabals working in secret, everything going incredibly smoothly, which is never how every, <laughs> any human activity ever goes. And so... I'm not saying ancient Christianity is a conspiracy, but I am saying that the, the, the truth of the stuff that I'm trying to write about, the truth of how the Gospels got transmitted and how people understood them and how the conception of Jesus' divinity developed over time is way more interesting than, than the simple sort of fundamentalist idea and the kind of mythicist idea that says Jesus was made up, he didn't exist, all this stuff was invented you know, after the fact. The truth, I think, is is deeply compelling in a way neither of those views are. 
But I think what your book shows us, what Apostle shows us, is that we can't know the truth. Right. Yeah. By truth, I don't mean... <laughs> I don't mean exactly what happened. I feel I mean, like you've just pulled the rug out, Tom. <laughs> I mean, our best reconstruction of these events, uh, using our own imaginations and... Um, and pursuing the story to find what you can find yeah, and see. Thinking imaginatively about who first wrote and read these Gospels. What, poss- mm-hmm. what, was, what were they thinking? How do we... How do we try to uncover what these passages mean? That, to me, is the most exciting thing about reading the Gospels, is, is just trying to detect the, uh, the concerns that these first uh, century people may have had. Like when Paul tells women, you must be silent in church in one of his letters, he only would have said that if the situation he was encountering was precisely the opposite. Um, and that's like a really important realization to have is that the first Christian gatherings had women leading prayer and prophesying and speaking in tongues and being in, and commanding respect. And um, in a patriarchal culture, that must have scared the bananas out of, out of people. So uh, I think that stuff like that is a really, uh, really exciting thing for me to read, to read Christian scripture for, for moments like that. And so with this project, the book you know, you're, you're talking about it and the ideas, and I can see that that's meaningful as well. Um, but does this mean like, are you still grappling? Like, is this something, cause you've spent a decade with it. Am I like inching toward belief? Well, well, no, I was, that I was more like thinking, <laughs> do you keep thinking like, are you still pursuing the story? The Yeah. Like I still buy books on Christianity, which I've never done before with when I finished writing a book for better or for worse, because I'm a dilettante travel writer who wanders from subject to subject. When I'm done with the subject, I'm done. I haven't read a book about Vietnam since I finished my Vietnam book. But this one, I keep buying books about Christianity. So clearly I'm not done. I clearly want to know more. And that's interesting to me. It's never happened to me before with the subject. But someone sent me an email. I was on Minnesota NPR yesterday. And the person was very kindly intentioned. And I, and I bear this person no animus at all. But she she offered a thought experiment to me. She said, you should take your daughter to church every day for a year as an experiment and see what happens. And I remember reading that and just thinking, well, A, no, and, you know, B. I mean, that's more than every Sunday or, or 5.30 on a Saturday. But I think she, she her point was, wouldn't you had the luxury of losing your faith. Wouldn't you want your daughter to, to choose to, to experience the joy of faith before she loses it? And it seemed like... From her perspective, I get where she was where she was coming from, but I don't want my daughter to grow up in the belief system of Christianity. That doesn't mean I'm hostile toward it, but it does mean that it's not a system of beliefs that I put spiritual value in. I put other sorts of value in it, but I don't want to expose my family to those beliefs because I think you can be a quote-unquote good person without those beliefs, which isn't to say... <clears throat> Which isn't to say I have the Richard Dawkins belief that, you know, religious belief is some weird mutation that makes us weak and stupid and destroys our society. No. No, clear, clearly. Clearly, clearly yeah. The book. But I think there's, um, there's a difference between that and wandering back toward faith because you feel some longing inside of you. I don't feel a longing inside of me. Maybe someday I will, but I don't right now. I have a hard time imagining ever having that longing. Let's take a short break. When we come back... Um, more conversation with Tom Bissell, his book, Apostle, 
or bones that shine like fire travels among the tombs of the Twelve. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is older, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze, country road. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Tom Bissell is here in the studio. We've got his book, Apostle, or Bones That Shine Like Fire, Travels Among the Tombs of the Twelve, here on the table with us. Um, Tom, thanks for picking the music for today. Um, We just had a little John Denver there. You're welcome, everyone. (laughs) A song that will be in your head, perhaps like it will be in mine for a while. Um, You're lucky to have it there. Yeah. I used to sing it as a kid when I was um, visiting family in England. Like I was like this weird little, I am a Yankee. Like I wanted to be American for some reason when I was there. I've gotten over that. Don't worry. I'm not like USA, USA (laughs) anymore. Um, But I would sort of hum that when I was like going down to the market, like, I don't know how I knew John Denver when I was like eight. Because he was on the Muppets (laughs) all the time. Maybe that's it. That was it. He seemed like a friend. He was awesome. Country roads. Yeah. Take me home. Country roads take me home. So this connects actually directly to one of your pilgrimages where you actually walked for 500 miles. 580 miles, I believe. Uh, I did it with a gentleman named Gideon Lewis Krauss, who, while we were walking somewhere in the middle of Spain invented a song called Pilgrim Song, which he invented all the lyrics, but the tune was Country Roads, and it, it, I don't remember any of the lyrics. They're printed in his book, but it's like, Pilgrim Song, Pilgrim Song, Pilgrim... I, you know, I can't do the rest of it, but... And Gideon had a very elaborate set of lyrics for the song, and one day we were just belting it out as loud as we could along the path. I think we were both just so out of our minds with... with Uh, pain and boredom at a certain point so you're just doing anything to keep yourself interested and so walking through a forest in spain singing pilgrim song as high (laughs) as we could was uh it burned up a couple hours pretty pretty well and uh gideon did not tire pointing out that he was a better singer than i was which is true he is but he didn't need to say it he didn't need to say it especially not over and over (laughs) (laughs) so you would roughly walk like 15 miles each day was that the and how long did it take you? And some of five weeks. Five weeks. Yeah. And so it's a Christian pilgrimage. It ends at the tomb of Saint James, uh, in Santiago, uh, Spain. And we started in the French Pyrenees and walked to Saint James's Church, and then we were there for a couple of days, and then we walked another twenty miles to, or forty miles to the coast, 
So and why is that important? Like why why does that is that part of the Yeah, it just seemed like how we were so close to actually the ocean, you know, and we may as well just just do it. So we did it. And then um Does he float back to Galicia in a boat? Because I feel like I That's learned that was one of the stories I learned about it. That's Maybe even in pieces, but he was in a boat that and came legend. back. That's the legend that he was beheaded. St. James was beheaded. The only martyrdom of one of the 12 recorded in the New Testament. He was supposedly beheaded by Herod Agrippa I in 41 or so. And, you know, the Acts of the Apostles doesn't say what happened to his body. It just says that the, you know, um, the uh, church sort of scatters after that a bit and according to legend his body his remains were put by the remaining 11 into a boat and pushed out and they they floated back to galicia and where his spanish flock had been waiting for him and then in the eighth or ninth century an ambitious spanish bishop discovered air quotes dramatic uh, the remains of saint james and built put a big church in santiago so you have to sort of believe that a these bones floated all the way back to Galicia, and then that the people who got who found them lost them for seven hundred years, <laughs> and and then they were sort of miraculously rediscovered. So you peek into these origin stories of how the bones got to which church. Almost in every instance, there's like a huge amount of willful fantasy, you know, at the core of all these legends. But that doesn't change the fact that they built a colossal, beautiful, magnificent Baroque church on the site, and. and then the site replaces the relic. You know, the site becomes the magnificent thing, and the relic that it supposedly entombs is just like, well, that's bull but look at this church. <laughs> Whoops, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that's bull beep. Um, Go back in time. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it gets, but it's, this is something that's, I mean, it's, this is what happens when we're talking about stories that are also, I don't know, they're meant to teach us. So, yeah, anyway can see so you say also that this um this cathedral is um like kilimanjaro right um saint peter's is like mount everest yeah. and this because this church does it's it just rises out of it's it's not surrounded by other huge buildings or yeah it's it's i mean it's an astonishing building it 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 looks like something from Atlantis that has just been dra dragged up by a cable, you know. And it's all covered in this yellow moss that sort of looks like seaweed, if you look at it in the <laughs> right way. It really does like an underwater city that they just lifted up and plunked into the middle of. Uh, uh, Gideon thought it looked like a Baroque train station, but I thought that was... I, I preferred my winched-up Atlantis imagery. <laughs> to, to, <laughs> that was a big part of our journey, is we're constantly taking notes, and we'd redo each other our descriptions of a place, and sometimes the other persons would be better, and you'd be like... Damn it. Nuts. <laughs> he beat me. Wait, yeah, what's the name of his book? Uh, a Sense of Direction. Uh, have you read it? No. So it's wonderful. It's really funny. And, you know, the first 130 pages are a count of Gideon's and my walk. And then he walked around Japan, an 800-mile trip. Twice as more than, you know, um, a little less than twice as long as the... And then he did a 40-mile pilgrimage in Kiev with his father. And this is all in one book? All in one book. Okay. It's three pilgrimages. And uh, I reviewed the book for GQ, um, pretending that I didn't know that I was a character in it, and just 
talking about how great all the parts of the book were with that had this wonderful character named Tom in them. Um, <laughs> how that was the strong, perhaps the strongest part of <laughs> part of the book. Clearly, this unforgettable character, whenever he's on the page, just like elevates everything to a level of amazingness. And then when he's gone, the book just becomes. Uh, so it was. A it's rat. noticeable. Let's just say that. <laughs> so it was a fun thing to actually like write a review of a book in which I was a character but uh, yeah, so, done does, very lovingly how does that often does that happen not That's, very yeah not very um and so for did you like camp or did you stay in towns I guess this is a logistical question that I'm wondering because I always thought oh maybe one day I would do this but you should it's wonderful you should absolutely do it and what you do is you stay in albergues which are these kind of small cheap hostels that a lot of people stay in and you can stay in monasteries occasionally. It's never usually more than 15 to 20 euros a night. Sometimes it's even like five euros. Or you can do what Gideon and I did, which is stay in a lot of five-star hotels while you're going. <laughs> we, we would occasionally get to the albergue kind of late. And rather than stay in a reasonable hotel, because it would be full, we would just oh. say, screw it. Let's just go to the nicest hotel in town. We did that often enough that when I got back and looked at the bill, I was like... I'm going to have to sell a lot of books. Um, so we didn't do that very often. We did it often enough that we laughed to ourselves that we were roughing it by uh, staying in these incredibly nice hotels. The, the I'm like picturing you in some sort of intercontinental or something. Oh, it's true. I was in a bathrobe after walking all day with my feet in the... What does that, what does that yeah. do to the pilgrimage, though? Do you think? Obviously nothing, right? Because like, it still doesn't change the fact that you're... You're doing it, yeah, it doesn't right? doesn't change the fact that you have to walk another 15 miles the next day, but it certainly makes the stops in between more comfortable. Huh. But uh, Yeah, we did We did a different sort of uh, Camino than the average uh, person did, but it was just part of the story. And, you know, to get bring it back to the book, I had a very, very long draft of the chapter of Gideon's in my walk. Oh, you did? Because this is the shortest chapter it's in the book. It's three pages long, or four pages long. And Gideon's book came out, and I read it, and I loved it, and I thought, well, damn how do I write an account that when he's already done it? And I got really depressed. So I thought, well, I guess I just do it. So I wrote a draft that was, you know, 50, 60 pages long, like a lot of the other chapters mm -hmm. were. And I just didn't know how to finish this book. And I didn't know what the point of this last chapter was. And I remember thinking to myself, I, I just wish, I just wish it could be a story rather than, rather than build up to this hugely significant and I thought oh that's that's what I'm actually writing about why can't things just be stories and I realized I was only ta not only talking about how to end my book but also talking about my experience of reading Christian scripture so Gideon gave me a great gift by writing his account first because it actually got me to understand the book that I was trying to write that was weird but it was it was good I'm glad that it happened that way I love that Okay, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll be right back. Today on Living Writers, Tom Bissell is here. Apostle, or bones that shine like fire, travels among the tomb, tombs of the Twelve. We'll be right back. Yeah. 
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Tom Bissell is here in the studio um, after a short jaunt to my my residence. <laughs> and so a quick shout out <laughs> to Machiko Clark. Many thanks for sending the books to the Liz and I so we could read them. And then and for also setting up this time for you to come to the studio and then eventually and you making it here, Tom. Yes, there was a slight confusion about where we were doing this today. And I wound up knocking on your door <laughs> in a very pleasant neighborhood of Ann Arbor that did not look at all like a place where we would record a radio interview. So and there was no garage for us to do a podcast from. So there was just... But you can't. You didn't send the cab away. It's a great story. Yeah, we made it. Yeah. We made it work. And and yeah, it seems like you're a man of journeys. Like you, you even mentioned that. Like you're, are you going to keep traveling? And is the it's harder you know, now that we have a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a almost a two year old daughter. Um, and. Uh, yeah, we're trying to plot our... Fr- well, I went to Israel recently uh, for 10 days with Trisha for a piece for Harper's, which will come out this summer. Um, I don't want to say much more about it than that, um, but when you read it, you'll see why I, there's some secrecy involved in this project. And, you know, being in Israel and going to a lot of places that I wrote about in the Judas chapter here made me like, God, I just miss traveling. It's the one drag about kids it's the only complaint i have everything else is wonderful but well it seems like so much part of your work so it's like what makes you tick yeah it is and uh you know i think the minute that she's old enough to go we're taking her to someplace someplace great because i want to travel with her that'd be a marvelous thing so but in the meantime in the meantime does that so are the books always then not necessarily because of extra lives that wasn't travel induced no no but you know i did a lot of traveling to to interview people that book i went to edmonton i went to all over the the country in canada to report that book um but i guess this is sort of a can i retroactively invent a trilogy yes um (laughs) so chasing the sea was me exploring my peace corps failure my book about vietnam was me exploring the vietnam war which haunted me to a huge degree because of my father and his experiences and how deeply imprinted they were upon me and this book travel book is is about my wrestling with the loss of my religious faith and my continued fascination with christianity what i'm saying is that i'm out of autobiography (laughs) you know i don't have i don't have like a burning topic that i can wrap around a compelling journey now so i guess i have to just keep priming that pump and hope something else comes up. But I was thinking the other day, like these were the three travel books that I could ever imagine writing. I don't know what happens next. For the first time in 20 years, I literally don't have a book idea. I'm just sort of spinning in space right now. It's not bad. You work on a book for nine years. It's okay. (laughs) Okay. Now I just had an idea. I think you're going into space. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That that sounds like a, uh, I think I'd have to know more stuff to do that well start researching yeah, okay. right it usually yeah. takes you a decade or so with the research right yeah I can <laughs> ask elon musk if he would uh let me be the writer in residence in his first manned space flight um I've, I've some, what a that's a primo gig that would be a good gig i think there are about a 400 other writers he would select before me but uh ah. I'll, I'll send him an email <laughs> a very compelling one yeah um and so for, we, we talked a little bit at the beginning of the program that you've, you've been on a book tour, um, and you, you're not reading Mm-mm. at these when you're, you're, you're doing talks, why and what's happening during them? It's the no reading book tour. <laughs> you will not hear me read a word from the book. It's a very hard, you read the book. It's a very hard book to read from. It's dense. 
and arcane and about material that's hard to, for people to listen to. Unless you're doing part of this, like when you're meeting up with different people that you meet, right. those parts. Yeah, those parts could be read, but it's true. I didn't think about that. But oh, no. <laughs> um, I just decided readings are a drag and everyone hates them. And the authors hate them. The audience hates them. Everyone pretends to want to be there and they're boring and no one has a good time. And I thought much more compelling would just be to give a talk. Um, and the talk is called Reading the Gospels Like a Writer. So about 80% of the speech is drawn from the book. It's not like reprodu reproductions from the book, but it's material that's definitely drawn from the book. And Can you give us an example? Like what? Yeah, so uh, I talk about the likely historical context and interpretive context between the Gospels of, behind the Gospels of Matthew, um, Mark, and Luke. And I show how, um, through the story of Peter's betrayal, how each Gospel writer handles it a little bit differently, which allows you a slightly different understanding of the likely audience that they were writing toward. And you can see how Luke and Matthew both improve the story and Mark, who came first, in very subtle ways. And in the ways they do that, they actually adjust Peter's motivation a little bit. And so I and try to... do that in dialogue? Or how... I can't remember that um, section, because I can remember the section, but not... Yeah, so Peter um, and Mark, Jesus tells Peter, you will deny me before the cock crows twice. And... In Matthew, he says, you will deny me before the cock crows. Because the two cock crows are very dumb, and it doesn't make any sense. And so Matthew read Mark's story and was like, two cock crows? That doesn't make any sense. So he improved the story. In Mark, Peter gets fingered as a Galilean. Um, he's like, you were with him. You were a Galilean. But in Matthew, read that, and he's like, well, how did they know? He says, ah, you were a Galilean. I, your accent betrays you. So yet again, Matthew, like, took this detail and he improved mm. it. And Matthew and Mark, they're, they're just as bystanders approach Peter and see him. But in Luke, the detail is a servant girl sits opposite from Peter and looking at him through the firelight says, you are also with him. And so it's... You that's, can, that's very imagistic. You can yeah, see that. You can see like how they each dealt with this common tradition of Peter denying Jesus and how they each set their own individual storytellers' minds to work and you can actually kind of glimpse their method a little bit. And that's an example from the talk that I, that I give. So uh, how to read the, new, the Gospels. Reading like the a, Gospels like a writer. writer. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's a, I think it's a good talk. I'll, I'll... And, and people talk back, and you have a, like, mm -hmm. with people. Yeah. Yeah, and it's an interesting mix of people. You write about this subject, you get people that are like Christians who are super open and interested, in, and then you get some people that, do not like having any doubt thrown upon these stories at all and get very aggressive. And then you have the Jesus lovers who just come in and just talk about how much they love Jesus and kind of take over the floor. And they're like, well, I love this job. I love this gospel. And I love when Jesus says this and Jesus is the best. And everyone just sort of sits there and like, yeah, you clearly do love Jesus a lot. <laughs> and then you're like, do you clear your throat? You're like, I'm, I'm the visitor here that's coming through town no, I with say, my book I say, Apostle. I say something like... <laughs> Bones that shine like fire. <laughs> I say something like, uh, this is evidence of how powerful these stories really are. Thank you. And then move on. So that's my way of my, my way of dealing with that. So... Well, Tom, thanks so much for taking the time to come by here. It is a delight to be here, and I'm sad that it's over already. Well, me too. And if only we had a song. That actually is about loving like, Jesus. Yes. Right? Yes, indeed. I, I think that's what 
that's the best way to go out, isn't I, it? I agree. Tom, so yeah. thank you so much. Thank you, too. Again, and, and I'll see you for the next book then, hopefully, I, right? I would love that. Who knows what my space travel book. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, today on the program, Tom Bissell, his book, Not Yet About Space. This one's, but, but lovely, stories, apostle or Bones That Shine Like Fire, travels among the tombs of the Twelve. You've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. fear is that my books are going to be out of date before it really gets a selling in this country. We're changing a lot of things into the church, and one of them is going to be the confessional. It's going to be one of the first things to go. You know, because we don't make any money in the confessional. It's not like, you know, we can charge $2 every time you come into confession. It's free. Everything else we get paid for. You know, weddings, funerals, everything. Even the last rites, you know, sometimes the people in the family can slip us a couple of bucks or something. <laughs> but in the confessional, you know, nothing. And it's hot in there. <laughs> and it's so boring, you know. <laughs> Little kids come in, you know, and you know, they say stuff, you know, I disobeyed my parents and stuff, you know, and you have to act real serious, you know, yes, you did, you know. Come on, please, you know. Junk. Well, we're playing around with this idea. It's called mass confessions. <laughs> and the idea is that the people will just all holler up their sins at once. And the priest then, he can just forgive them in unison. <laughs> right now we have it in test markets in Bologna and Akron. <laughs> and it's going very well from what I understand. And. Uh, if you want to give it a little try here tonight, I'm more than willing. <laughs> what do you say? You want to, want to do it? Okay. Well, first, I'll just give you a couple of minutes to examine your consciences. You know, think of the sins you've made in the last week or hours. I don't know what you've been up to. <laughs> so what I'll do now is... Uh, I'll count to three, and on the count of three, just holler up your sins, and we'll go from there. Okay? One, two, three.
didn't hear nothing but the, some laughter there. Maybe some of you are a little shy, you know, you think someone's going to listen in. Maybe hit on you later, something like that. You know, maybe what I should do is like go over some sins. And if I come into something, you know, might be a little bit familiar, just raise your hands. Okay? How about the masturbation? None? Nobody? Not done enough. It's really popular with the nuns in Italy. How about an SNM? Anybody anything? Say the masochistic stuff? I see somebody pointing at it, they're wondering. Maybe she knows something. I think maybe I misjudged this crowd a little bit, you know. How about like uh, leaving your room without turning out the lights? Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. I knew it. I knew it. Twelve. Boy, she looks embarrassed, eh? The way everyone's looking at her, better you do it all the time, huh? Well, I don't know how this is going to work, Mexican Confessions. I guess we'll have to just wait and see. We're changing a lot into the church, and people don't seem to be able to take it. You know, we like to change it from Latin. People got so upset. It was amazing. You know, no one liked Latin. First thing, you change it, and they're upset, you know? You think it was their family language or something, you know? So many things we find out, we just don't want to tell them because we think they'll take off and join another religion. Shotgun snap, looks to his right and connect. Reaching for the end zone, touchdown Michigan, Amara Darba. Gardner makes a hand off to Smith, looking, firing. Jake Buck, one-handed catch. He caught it, unbelievable catch. Good Wednesday afternoon to everyone listening out there. My name is David Carlson. You're listening to, to WCBN FM and Arbor 88.3 on your dial and the Daily Sport Report. We have a special Daily Sport Report for you today. Um, the Michigan baseball team is battling the Eastern Michigan Eagles at Ray Fisher Stadium as we speak. It is at in the bottom of the seventh, and the Wolverines actually lead the Eagles 12-1, to 1. WCBN Sports' crew Dalton Pataki and Morris Fabry have the 